Man, it's so good to be with all of you this morning. So excited to be here. Uh, you know, again, we get to uh, explore, to engage in this incredible thing uh, called the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, God revealed Himself to us as a human race. He had no obligation to do that. Uh, he, we, 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 do, we are not people that deserve that. Uh, he, he didn't have to do that. He just did. Uh, to demonstrate his grace and mercy and love toward us. And, and we get to explore the very revelation of God to us to tell us who he is, who we are, and how our relationship works and what part we play in his grand story. And, and that should be exciting every single time we open the pages of this incredible thing, this living, breathing reality of God's revelation. And on top of that, beyond that, uh, in our exploration of God's Word that we started over a decade ago in Genesis and have traveled our way through, uh, we are currently engaged in a letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome from where he currently is up uh, in the regions uh, near Ephesus and, and Asia Minor. He is writing this letter because his plan is to move his headquarters from Antioch, where it currently is, to Rome because Paul is a Roman citizen, so he has the right to live in Rome. Rome is expanding, and so Paul recognizes strategically to be in the place where the center of all things are will make sense. And so he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, essentially to unpack the beauty of the redemptive story of God, the gospel, its intricacies, its giant, beautiful, big picture, so that by the time he arrives there, they have a clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that he can answer questions but doesn't have to start from scratch. We have been traveling through this incredible letter. Uh, we have gone through the first eight chapters now. We've entered chapter nine. Uh, as you know, if you've been around, we are moving toward chapter 12, verse one, where the grand transition takes place in this letter, where he says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So here's what we know because of Romans 12, one, that Romans one, uh, chapters 1 through 11 is a grand display of the mercy of God. We ought to get to the end of 11 and not know how to breathe anymore as we consider the mercy of God. We should be overwhelmed, weak in the knees, just standing there going, this is too much for my human soul to, to comprehend. And then we will enter well into Romans chapter 12. Now, as far as grand transitions go, Romans chapter 12 is the grand transition, but Romans chapter 9 verse 1 is also a transition of sorts because we've just come out of Romans chapter 8, uh, this beautiful, what seemed to be uh, the pinnacle of Romans 1 through 8, this display of, of the implications of what Jesus has done for us and what God is doing for us and will do for us, what it means that we have the Spirit of God and how awesome that is. And we get to the end of eight, and then you remember if you were here last week, we step into nine, and it kind of takes a, a little bit of a turn. Uh, the tone changes, we switch to a different a train of thought, and, and here's why. If you remember from last week, and in brevity as a reminder, it is because the church in Rome is a mixed church of ethnic Jewish people, ethnic Israel, and Gentiles who have all come to know Jesus and live under the banner of Christ now. But those who are part of the Jewish world, part of ethnic Israel, uh, they are grappling with the implications of the gospel in a slightly different way than the Gentiles are. We get to the end of eight, and remember, at first you might have thought, if you were ethnic Israel, God chose for himself a people, Israel, and then through that people, he produced a Messiah, Jesus, and the Messiah wasn't only for Israel, his chosen people, 
but also for the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are included into the story of Israel. You with me so far? So you got Israel, the chosen people, Messiah for Israel. Oh, Messiah for everyone, everyone included. What a happy story. But what happens when some of ethnic Israel reject the Messiah? What happens when the chosen people of God who are already in the story and the Gentiles will be included, what happens when they reject the Messiah that is for them? Are they still included or are they now rejected? In which case, if they're rejected, how on earth is God faithful to his promises to the people of Israel if he is allowing them to reject Jesus and then rejecting them? So it's not as easy as Israel's in, Messiah comes, Gentiles get in, happy everyone. It's Israel's in, Messiah comes, some reject Messiah from Israel, they're not in, and Gentiles come in who shouldn't be in, and they're in because they know Jesus. Would you not begin to ask, okay, what, what about my kinsmen, uh, the, the people that, that have known God all along just because they reject Jesus? Is, is that it for them now? And, and the bigger question is that fair? And the bigger question, has God's word not failed? If God's word said, here are my promises to you, my covenants to you, you've in, in Romans 1 through 8 systematically undone those covenants as a means to salvation. So circumcision doesn't cut it. The law doesn't cut it. Your ethnicity, your bloodline doesn't cut it. It's Jesus now. So what about those things? Does God's promises change on the fly? Did God's word fail when he said, these are my promises to my people? And if God's word has failed or his promises change in regularity, then how on earth can you and I trust God's future promises? And if God makes promises and he can just change them anytime he wants, how do you know that his promises are promises? And then how do you know he's going to be faithful? And then you can't count on his faithfulness and I can't count on his faithfulness and then we're in trouble. And so this is the, the question Paul is going to answer to the people in Rome, and we will be the recipients of that answer by definition of it being written down in the Word of God. So this is pretty awesome. So let us begin diving in to what Paul is doing. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided at the doors when you came in, it's page 1046. 1046. If you brought a smart device or your own Bible with you, uh, it is Romans chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 6, but just a quick reminder, verse 1 through 5 we love how this starts because what we're going to find out in 9 is that God is authoring a story. He is the author and producer of the story, and we can trust him with the story. But what I love about the first part of 9 is God says, just because I'm writing the story, and just because I've always been writing the story, it doesn't mean that I am disconnected from the story. Like it's just something, I'm, I'm writing a story, I don't care about the characters in it. My heart is for the people into which I am writing into this story. And so he starts Romans chapter 9 saying there's some hard things I'm going to talk about, but man does my heart not grieve when people reject me and find themselves rejected. Man, God's heart for us is extraordinary, even though he is systematically writing a story throughout history that can sometimes seem like it doesn't consider me and it doesn't consider you. Oh, it does. Oh, it does. So, after Romans chapter uh, 9, verse 1 through uh, 5, and the compassion of God is laid out, the question is, 
Has God's word failed? In other words, is God unfaithful to his promises? And here's how Paul begins this particular little section. Romans chapter 9 verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. I love that sentence, okay? Because this is the thesis statement of the next paragraph. You know how English works, right? I've got seven teenagers, so they're all writing papers these days. And, and there's a certain sequence the paper has to be written in, and you get the little list from the teacher, and it's like, we need a thesis statement. And then at the thesis statement, you, you write the body proving the thesis statement, and then you write the conclusion that shows how your body proved the thesis statement, so now the thesis statement is true. But if the thesis statement isn't true, then your body proved that it's not true, then your conclusion should say it's not true. Got that? Did you take notes? Important. That's how English works, okay? So, Paul starts with a direct thesis statement unapologetically, and this is very important for those of us that are sitting here and for the church in Rome and for the people of Israel, and here's why. Because he could have started this by saying, well, God does what he wants, and if he wants to change his promises, he can, right? Would have been perfectly fine to write that. And then we would have been left with, oh, that's how it works. We can't really count on God's promises because God does with those promises whatever he wants and he can change them anytime. That would have been a statement. But you see, this statement is this beautiful rock onto which our feet can land before we even understand why it's true, which is this. God's word did not fail. God's faithfulness is intact. God's promises do stand and you don't have to worry. Man, that should be good news to us. We should go, thank goodness that's the sentence. Because if it was another sentence, that would have been scary. But it's this one, and that's good. Now, the sentence, the thesis statement is all good and fine. But the big question is, I, I, I hear you, Paul. God's word has not failed, but how can you say that? Because it seems at face value that it has. Because he made promises to his ethnic people Israel. He chose this nation and then the Messiah came, he included the Gentiles, but those in the nation that reject the Messiah are no longer part of the chosen, and, and so you've broken promises to them. And so Paul goes, okay, hold on, let's unpack that, and let me show you why I can say without apology that God's word has not failed and that God is faithful. Let's take a look. Okay, so look what he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel, belong to Israel. Huh? I mean, that's, what a weird sentence. Isn't that a weird sentence? It kind of sounds like a cop-out, doesn't it? Just at first, I'm just saying. When I read this, I'm like, okay, Paul, where are you going with this? Okay, the people you think are Israel aren't actually Israel, and the bloodline isn't Israel, except that they're Israel. And so I'm not sure how that answers the question that God is still faithful. The people that are Israel are not actually Israel. Number one, that's weird. Number two, when you say that, it starts getting my feathers a little ruffled if I happen to be ethnic Israel because I'm like, oh, hold on, oh, hold on. If I'm Israel, I'm Israel, and that's it. I'm Israel. You can't be telling me I'm not Israel. So, so Paul makes the statement, here's the deal. The people you are saying God has broken his promises to, the promises that you think he made to those people and how those promises play out and exactly who those people are and who qualify as those people may not be correct. Have you ever been in those situations where uh, you have kids, uh, you, your kids, and they're, and, they're, and they're talking to you and they're, and they're going through stuff with you and, and then they, they start telling you what you promised? Have you ever had that? Well, you, well, you, you said that and then they, they change the sentence 
with like three letters in the sentence or, or two words in the sentence, and as soon as those two words change, then you're caught off guard, and you think, to, maybe I did promise that to them. Why would I have promised that to them? That's the most idiotic promise on planet Earth, but I feel like I need to apologize. Should I apologize for making the promise and being a fool or for not keeping the promise because they're holding me to a promise that I think I didn't make, but I apparently did? And then you find out they changed two words in the sentence. Changes the entire promise. They're holding you to a promise you never made. Now, have you ever had that? I know that's never happened to you, but it happens to me. And so what Paul is starting us out into here is saying, listen, you are asking if God is faithful because you are, you are assuming a set of promises to a set of people, but you may have the promises wrong and you may have the people group wrong. So let's start here. Let's start here. For not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. Okay, Okay, Paul, how can you say that? Let me tell you. And not all who are children of Abraham, uh, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So Paul is about to do something where he's going to begin to show what he's been showing in Romans all along, that there is a spiritual component to this journey that is by faith, that has nothing to do with the ethnic journey or by works or by merit. And so we know that that's been part of Romans all along. And now he's saying this, let's start here. The people you say God made a promise to, ethnic Israel, not all who are part of ethnic Israel are part of God's people, and not all who belong to Abraham by blood are part of Abraham's people. And we know that this is tying back to what we've studied in Romans so far, where Paul on several occasions said, those who are in Christ are now part of Abraham's spiritual family. See, because Abraham didn't come to Jesus by works, he came by Faith, and so those who come by faith are now part of Abraham's family in a way that those who are tied to his bloodline and by merit are not. And so he is confirming or, or restating that fact. Remember, guys, when you say, how can God not be faithful to ethnic Israel? Remember, we talked about this, not all who are bloodline Israelite are actually part of God's chosen people, and not all who have a bloodline to Abraham are Abraham's children. Because Abraham's children are different now. Let's take a look. Look what he does next. But, but, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What a weird sentence. This entire passage, uh, chapter 9. I, when, when you first read it, you're like, okay, skip that line. I don't know what it means. And, and here's the weirdest part about this line. When you're trying to make an argument about someone not being part of God's people because they're part of a bloodline, your statement of proof can't be the bloodline. Do you understand what I'm saying? Israel, those who are part of Israel aren't really part of Israel in the way that we're talking, and those who are tied to Abraham are not because you remember the promise through Isaac, you will be a part of the bloodline. And you're like, I, 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 don't, I don't understand. You just seem to unprove the very point you were proving. No, not true. What Paul's about to do, what the Spirit of God through Paul is about to do is absolutely wondrous because he is going to place on the table now the beautiful difference between the way God works and the way we think and the reality of bloodline and the reality of promise. Those who are part of the flesh, in other words, bloodline, and those who are part of the promise. And he starts with the story of Isaac. And he says this. Look, he says this. Because it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
You think that's about blood, but it's not. Look what he says next. This means, I love those two words, this means. Because whenever you're confused and the next words are, what this means is, then you know you're about to be relieved of your confusion because you're gonna, okay, good, he's gonna explain because that makes no sense, watch. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. See, hasn't that cleared it up for you? Everything's clear now. You're like, no, everything's not clear. I know that's because we don't all walk around every day with the entire historical context and history of the entire Old Testament in our head. So allow me to travel you into the story so that you will understand the extraordinary wonder of what the Spirit of God just said through Paul, okay? So the story goes back to the beginning. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, where all began, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So every Israelite by blood can trace themselves back to one of Jacob's sons, therefore Jacob, therefore Isaac, therefore Abraham. You're with me so far? Okay. Now, in the beginning, the reason all this happened is because of a promise God made to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham that he would produce through Abraham and Sarah a son. He made the promise to Sarah as well, so that it was very clear the promise was for who? Abraham alone or for both Abraham and Sarah? Both. So Abraham and Sarah would have a son. Through that son, God would create a nation more numerous than the stars or the, uh, the sand on the sea. And through that nation, God would produce a story that would bless who? All nations, tribes, and tongues. So there's, there's the grand story of God. I, through Abraham and Sarah, will produce a son who will produce a nation who will produce something or someone that will become a blessing to all. Wow, that's an awesome story. So uh, some time goes by and Sarah does not conceive. And so in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah, not Abraham, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, listen, this isn't working as well as we thought, and I certainly haven't conceived, and I'm getting older, I'm way beyond, so I think we need to participate in God's production of this promise. Why don't you go take our servant Hagar, and you go, you go hang out with her and produce a child with her? And Abraham said, are you kidding me, Sarah? Are you out of your mind? We're going to trust God. We're going to hang tight on this. We're going to believe him. And I love you, not Hagar. And I'm going to stick with that. Nope, he didn't do any of that. He went, okay. <laughs> I mean, guys, the spiritual giants that are the men and women that we look to are as insane as the rest of us and as driven by their own insanity as we are. What good news, isn't it? The only good one is God himself. And so his grace is awesome. So Abraham goes, I'll do it. And he goes and hangs out with Hagar and produces a son. The son's name is Ishmael. Out of Ishmael, an entire nation is born, not the nation of Israel. Okay? So after Ishmael is born, if all things play out fair, then this is how it works. In that cultural context, the oldest son born of the father was the inheritor of all things. So since Sarah made a mistake and Abraham bought into the mistake and Ishmael was born. What should happen now? God's promises, God's nation, God's people, the one that will be a blessing to all should come through who? 
Ishmael, that's, that's just a reality in this time. It is obvious to anyone that if you're going to be fair, if you're going to be right, then you're going to take the firstborn son and you're going to produce through that firstborn son through the flesh the reality of a nation. Did God make his nation come from Ishmael? A son not born of Sarah as he promised. No, he did not. He, despite Sarah's insanity and despite Abraham's insanity, he still fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah. And later on, she would conceive a son named Isaac. And through Isaac would be born Esau and Jacob. And through Jacob, 12 boys. And through those 12 boys, the nation of Israel. So is the nation of Israel uh, who they are because of flesh or because of promise? Promise, they're not because of flesh. If it was by the flesh, the logical process, what is right? He should have picked Ishmael even though that wasn't his plan. God should have adjusted to the plan. Did God adjust to the plan? No, because you know what? Good news. God never adjusts to our plan, ever. He will never do it. He has never done it. Oh, he uses our insanity for his plan, but he never adjusts to our plan. He has a plan. He is the author. He writes it. He finishes it. He produces it. He gets it done. And he is the one we can trust. So here we see again that God says, Israel, you who have just stood up and said, hold on. God's word has failed because you made promises to Israel. And now that you're not including all of Israel and that every human that is eth uh, ethnic Israel and you're including the Gentiles, that's not fair. That's missing the plan. And God goes, hold on. Let's talk fair. Let's talk fair. Ishmael and the nation he produced. That's who I should have picked. That's who I should have picked. But I picked Isaac. Why? Because that's what I promised. Do you see what God's systematically doing? I'm faithful to what? My promises, always. And I've been doing this. And frankly, you are the recipients of some things that you would have marked as unfair if it didn't relate to your joy. Don't we do this all the time? It's so unfair that you did that. Well, it was unfair that I, what I did for you. Well, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Oh, and, and it's not done. It's not done. You see, this is what's beautiful about this. As God goes, look, my promise has always been to do this through Abraham, to produce a nation, through that nation, to produce one who would become a blessing to all nations. That's my promise. Never once in all of the Old Testament did I say, and every person who is ethnic in that nation shall be saved. I've never said that. You see how we change the promises? You said Israel would always be, hold on, I never said every person who is bloodline to Abraham would be saved. I said, through the nation that is Abraham's nation, I will produce a story that will bless all nations, including the one through whom I am writing the story. Is Israel included in the blessing? Absolutely, as are all nations. Now look, God's not done, Paul's not done. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Do you understand what that means now? For this is what was promised and said about the time next year I will return and Sarah shall, be, Sarah shall have a son. So there's how even the people of Israel are not the people of the flesh, but the people of the promise and as are we now. Now look at this. And not only so, verse 10. But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Hmm? This is 2017, you can't say that. I didn't say it. God said it. You can talk to him about it, right? So this feels all wrong, doesn't it? So here's the deal. Let's, let's, let's go back in history again. What's God up to here? So after Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah conceives twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Those two boys are born. And here's what God said to Rebekah about those two boys before they were born, before they had done anything that would show us that they have earned anything by any works or merit of their own, God immediately tells Rebekah, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go, and the older will serve the younger, for Esau I hated and Jacob I loved. We're going to get to that part in a few minutes. What's going on here? What he's about to show Israel is that the entire story up to now has been a story that hasn't gone the way it should have gone if God was determining justice and determining uh, goodness and determining redemption based on our sensitivities, on our understanding of things. Then none of it should have been the way it is. Watch this, okay? So where does this little thing happen? Back in Genesis. We're going to go there. You don't have to turn. You can just listen or you can turn. Genesis chapter 26 I mean 25, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 25, this is where the incident takes place where God speaks to Rebecca about her two boys, they're twins, here's what it says. So Rebecca inquires of God about some things, and it says this in chapter 25, verse 23, and slightly before that. So she went to inquire of the Lord, Rebecca did, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and let's just stop there for a second. No woman deserves to birth two nations. Are you with me? No woman. You cannot birth two nations because that would be insane. See, they are not actually two nations in her womb. They are two what? Children in her womb. But what is God saying about these two children? That each of these children will represent a nation and that nation a story. And those stories of those nations will represent God's story to show God faithful to his promise that he would produce through a nation the Messiah who would be a blessing to all nations so that out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, people of his would belong, not an ethnic people, but a spiritual people. Are you with me so far? And so now he's going to show how this has been true all along and that Israel has been the recipient of some of the extraordinary grace that has come with God's writing the story instead of him adjusting to our plans and our story. Two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger." The people of Israel, the Jewish people in the church would have known this very well. It's part of their historical story. Esau is born first, Jacob born second. So who should be the recipient of all the blessings of Isaac and therefore all the promises of God and therefore which nation should ultimately be the nation that receives the promises of God, the protection of God, the rescue of God, the whole story, the Red Sea, the promised land, the whole entire thing. Who should it be? If we're going by what is fair and right, it should be Esau's nation, right? Not Jacob's. And here's the best part. Esau's born first. Esau's a good guy. Okay, he does his thing. One day he gets super tired 
and he's super hungry and he wants some soup and Jacob has some soup. You know what Jacob is? Let me just be abundantly clear. Jacob is a conniving, lying, manipulative, horrid little person who wants to take what he wants, how he wants, and when he wants from anyone, including his brother. Boy, that's the kind of forefather I want, don't you? And it's so clear that God would bless Jacob over Esau. Esau, the hardworking hunter who provides for the family and gets tired, or Jacob, the lying, scheming, manipulative boy that hangs out with mom at home and figures out ways to steal everything. You choose. Here's what God's saying. Esau was born first. Then Esau made a dramatic mistake. In a moment of weakness where he was hungry and tired, he wanted some soup and Jacob had some and Jacob said, how about your entire inheritance for a bowl of soup? I see this in my house all the time. My young boys will come to my older boys and they'll go, I will bet you a hundred dollars I can make a three point shot right now. And then I go, no bets in this house because here's what's gonna happen. Someone's gonna be silly enough to go, no, you can't, I'm in. And then the, the three pointer's gonna happen and then this kid's gonna say, you owe me a hundred dollars. And I'm gonna have to go, no, he doesn't because that was a stupid bet and he wasn't supposed to make it. And he was foolish for making it. Don't ever do that again. And you stop asking for bets, right? This happens all the time. So two boys will be boys and they come together and Esau goes, fine, I'll, you can have my inheritance. I don't care. And Jacob is signed here. <laughs> Paperwork. And then suddenly, boom, it's, it's done. Then Jacob later on tricks his father into giving him the blessing instead of Esau as well. And through that story, the nation of Israel is born out of who? Jacob, the 12 sons. Through that nation of Israel, the Messiah, through the Messiah, the redemption of humanity and the blessing to all nations. Mm, you, you, you ready for the shocker? Do you know which nation was born out of Esau? Mm. The Edomites. The Edomites. You might go, who are the Edomites? Oh, the Edomites are very, very tangibly real to the people in the church in Rome right now. Do you know who rules over the people of Israel in the Roman Empire? Who is their king? Who is the king of the Jews? Not Jesus. I mean, he is the real king of the Jews. But who says he's the king of the Jews? Herod. Herod. Do you remember Herod? Herod was the one that killed John the Baptist. Herod was the one that chopped James's head off, the disciple of Jesus. Herod was the one that hated the church. And the people of Israel hated Herod. Do you know why they hated Herod? Other than him being a crazy dude that they hated? Because he was an Edomite. He was from the nation of the Edom people. And the Edomites were a people that were completely separated and divided from the Israelites. And they hated the Edomites and the Edomites hated them. And the fact that Herod was able to politically maneuver himself to become the king of the Jews as an Edomite was the greatest insult of the entire century to the Jewish people that an Edomite would rule over them. And do you know what God just said to them in this neat little sentence? I should have picked the Edomites. They should have been the recipients of the Red Sea, the promised land. They should have been the recipients of the Messiah. They should have been the recipients of the covenant. They should have been the recipients of the law. They should have been the ones that I protected. They should have been the ones I walked with. They should have been the ones I chose. If we are going by your story, if we are doing this in a way that matches your sensibilities of what is fair and right, then the Edomites should have produced Jesus, not the Israelites. I mean, if you were an Israelite at that time, you'd start feeling nauseous. But that's the truth. That's what's fair if we're going by what we determine to be fair. But does God go by what we determine to be fair? 
No, does God write his story as he must to produce his redemptive story? Yes. And here's the coolest part. See, we always try to figure out whether our participation in the story uh, helps God along or doesn't. Does God use our failures uh, to produce his story or does he, does he ignore our failures and do it anyway? Well, here's the cool part. Watch this. In Sarah's case, when she said to her husband, go, go hang out with Hagar, produce a child, was that wise? No. Did, did Abraham make a wise choice by doing it? No. Did it produce Ishmael that totally diverted the entire plan? Yes. Did God care? No. Did he still produce his promise? So did he ignore the failure of the humans involved and do what he does anyway? Yes. So now we know the answer. When you mess up, he just ignores it and he does what he wants anyway. Well, hold on. Let's look at Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, he wanted Jacob to be the leader. He wrote that into the story so Jacob would produce Israel and Israel would produce the Messiah. How did that come about? Was it because of Esau's insanity when he was overtired and he wanted some soup? Yes, it was because Esau said, I'm hungry. And that's how the inheritance exchanged. It was a dumb move uh, by Esau and a manipulative move by Jacob. Did that produce what God needed? Yes, odd, isn't it? Uh, A liar lies and it produces God's plan. Hmm. And then later on, did Jacob trick his father into blessing him? And did God allow that to play out into his story? Yep, he sure did. And then later on, did Jacob continue to lie about a bunch of stuff? Yeah, he sure did. He sure did. And he got Rebecca because of that. And Rebecca produced uh, the, I mean, not Rebecca. He got, he got a, a crazy story because of that, right? So here's the thing. Jacob and Esau make a boatload of mistakes together cumulatively, and that produces God's plan. Sarah makes a giant mistake with Abraham and God ignores it and produces his plan. So which one is it? Which one does God do? Here's the beauty. It doesn't matter. What matters is that God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with or without your insanity. (laughs) With or without your insanity. Sometimes he'll ignore it. Sometimes he'll use it. Sometimes he'll weave it in. Sometimes he won't. Because in the end, the only thing you and I need to know is that in the end, What will never sometimes happen is that we will thwart God's plans. That will never sometimes happen. God will write his redemptive story no matter what. And so what he's saying to Israel here is, guys, you are looking at this entire thing, trying to figure out what's fair and what's not, and you need to stop being judge and jury because God has been at this from the beginning of time and before that, and he will be at this until the end of time, and you are a participant in the story, but you are not an author of the story, nor are you a producer of anything in the story. You are simply privileged to participate with God, and sometimes you'll do it well, and sometimes you'll do it badly, and despite well or badly, God's redemptive end will be realized. That's good news. That's good news. That's really good news. What about Jacob I hated and Esau I loved? Okay, that takes us back to Malachi. And I want to close out here because I think God's heart in this and the way he communicates to us in humanity is important. We know that our version of God's justice, our version of God's goodness, our version of God's fairness is skewed because we're human. So we should stop trying to figure out what he's doing that's right or wrong and cast our vote. And we should start learning to trust whatever he does because his promises have always been faithful and always will. And we count on that despite what we may observe in the current reality. But look at this. We should also realize this. That little statement, because, 
Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, came out of Malachi, the last book written in the Old Testament. And it comes out of the very first part of Malachi and it tells us a lot about God's heart in this and how he is unpacking this for us. Malachi chapter one, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. He's speaking to Israel. Last book of the Old Testament and this is what he starts the book with. I have loved you. I have loved you. Have you ever said that to your kids? I have loved you. I have worked relentlessly to produce freedom for you. And your kids go, how have you loved me? How have you produced freedom for me? This isn't freedom. This is a prison sentence. I have to eat what you tell me, go where you tell me to go. I can't do what I want, and you call this love. Ever had that happen? Me neither. I'm just saying theoretically, <laughs> hypothetically, it could happen, right? Isn't this how kids roll? All kids, same way. We have an observation about what we think love should be, and if it's not exactly what we think it should be, ultimately giving us all things without question, then we don't think we're loved. And so when this crazy person above us says, I have loved you, because they understand the fullness of what love is, we go, how have you done that? So that's what Israel does, because Israel are the kids of God, right? Take a look. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? I'm super sad you asked because it's going to get hard. Look what, he, look what he says next. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? That's God's answer. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes. Was he not born first? Yes. Should I not have loved the Edomites in a way I have not showed you love? No, 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 the answer is yes. Look, is Esau not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet, I have loved Jacob. Is this about Esau and Jacob, folks? Is this about Esau and Jacob? No, does God love Esau and Jacob and you and me? Yeah, yeah that's, a different, that's a different category. It's a different reality. But when God's speaking here, he said to Esau and Jacob's mom, in your womb are two what? nations. And one of those nations I'm going to show my favor to, my faithfulness to, my promises to. I'm going to protect them despite their insanity. And through them, I'm going to produce a Messiah who will bless all nations. And then the people of the world will know who I am and how faithful I am because I will have shown them who I am through a long journey together and then produce the Messiah. And through one of those nations, I'm not going to do that. What does it seem like God's attitude to the, toward the second nation is. One he loved, one he hated. It would seem that way, wouldn't it? Because that's how we equate love and hate. Watch, watch. Is it not Esau? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, do you see how quickly he changed to the nation? Because this paragraph was never about two boys. It was about a story for two nations. One that would be the recipients of God's constant blessing despite their insanity. And one that would not. And they would have to do it on their own. And it wouldn't go well. Because God is writing a story for who? For all nations. To show himself to all nations. Watch this. 
If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they may be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. Do you see what he's saying? When you watch what happens circumstantially with the Edomites and you watch what happens circumstantially with Israel, you, the observer, are going to say this. God has forever hated the Edomites and he has forever loved the Israelites. Why, why is God writing this? Because the Israelites asked a question. How have you loved us? You want to know how I've loved you? I chose you. I protected you. I gave you the covenants. I gave you the law. I gave you my presence. I gave you the tabernacle. I gave you the, I gave you the ark of the covenant. I gave you the story of the Messiah. I gave you the promises. And I fulfilled them because through you, Israel, what did I produce? The Messiah. And the Messiah has become a blessing for who? All nations. Have I fulfilled my promises? What God promised to do through Israel, did he do it? Yes. Has he fulfilled it? Yes. Are all nations blessed because of the story of what God did? Despite the fact that he should have picked Ishmael. Despite the fact that he should have picked Esau. Did he do those things because it would meet our sensibilities? No, because he was part of a bigger thing going on and he is God and he does what he wants when he wants and how he wants. And because of that, he can now say, Israel, did I not choose you? Is that not enough to say God has loved me? Is that not enough? He's not trying to make a point about Edom here. He's trying to make a point about Israel. You with me? Watch this. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. You see, because God's story has always been about beyond the borders of Israel. He's always been doing all of this to demonstrate himself to the people, the human race, to say, I am God, I am good, and I am in pursuit of your redemption, and I will produce one who will redeem you that will become a blessing to all and when you look at the immediate circumstance and the immediate little moment and you go, where is God and why is he? I get it, I get it, but you are looking at the wrong thing because my faithfulness is not so small. It is so much bigger than that. In God's story, he has not always done it the way we thought he should. That's clear. He's not always done it in the way we thought was fair. That's clear. He certainly hasn't done it because we made mistakes. That's clear in Sarah. And he certainly didn't do it without our mistakes. That's clear in Jacob and Esau. So what, is, what does that tell us? Is God going to finish the work he began in you and in me? Yep. Despite you? Yep. With you? Yep. In you, through you, around you? Yep, yep, yep. Because you and I are not the authors of this story. He is. And thank God that is true. Because if we were the authors of this story and God kept responding to us, we would have Ishmael. Oh no. We would have, well, we wouldn't even have Esau because <laughs> Isaac would have been here. And Esau, if God even made a mistake with Isaac, then we would have had Esau instead of Jacob and it would have been the Edomites and Herod would have been the Messiah. I'm kidding. But that's how scary it gets. But it's not that way. Because God does not have his plans undone by us. And yet, he allows us to participate in the story constantly as Sarah and Abraham did, as Jacob and Esau did, 
and as we get to. When you walk out of here, I don't know what circumstances you're facing. Maybe right now the circumstances are telling you God is awesome. Everything is as it should be and the world is wondrous for you. Good, I'm glad. It's good to have a set of circumstances every now and then that reminds us of God's immediate goodness to us, isn't it? Because God is often immediately good to us. Things aren't always hard and bad. Sometimes they're just awesome and beautiful. But if you're in a set of circumstances right now where you've been plugging away, doing the thing and it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and you're wondering, oh my gosh, God, where are you? What have you done? Are you faithful? Will you pull through? Here's what we are reminded of. Has God ever failed? You can say it loudly, really. Uh, no. <laughs> no. 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 Never. Has he ever been unfaithful? Has he ever forgotten a promise? Has he ever made one he didn't intend to keep? And because he intends to keep it as he in ever intended to but didn't. No. No, 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 and no. God will always, in every way, produce everything that he has said he would. That includes your finished work and mine. That includes all things being made new. And that includes the redemption of everything and the destruction of evil. And that is our legacy and our future. And that stands in Romans chapter 9 as a reminder. God's grace and mercy cannot, will not, ever be undone. Not by you, not by me, not by anyone, not by anything. Trust him and you will be free. Stop being judge and jury, trying to figure out what he's doing right or wrong. And trust him and you will be free. He's got this even when you and I don't. He's got this even when you and I do. He's got this. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful story in Romans 9 using Isaac and, and using Jacob and Esau and things that honestly, if we're honest, we go back, should have gone a different way if you were adjusting to our insanity and adjusting to our plans and adjusting to our desires. But I just want to thank you that you don't do that. Thank you, God, that you're not calling me to do better so that your plans will play out. You're not daring me or asking me or begging me to get it right so that you can try to get your plans right. But you are reminding me every day to participate best I can by the Spirit of God, my eyes fixed on you, Jesus, but to know that when I do, you will include me in the beauty of your redemptive plan. And when I don't, well, sometimes you will include me in the beauty of your redemptive plan and sometimes you'll just ignore my insanity and do it anyway. But one thing I can know to be true, that I cannot, I will not, ever in any way undo any one of the plans you have. No person will remain unsaved because I mess it up. No person will be saved because I get it right. Only you and you alone will author those kinds of things. I get to share with people about your redemptive reality because I'm a participant in your story. My kids, my marriage, my life, all those things. God, they are momentary, temporary things that seem up and down. But you remind us that in the end, even my dramatic mess, you will redeem into beauty. And all of my dramatic wonder, you will weave into beauty. Thank you that I am not author, nor producer, just participant, just recipient of your grace and mercy.
and it only expands for me today the magnitude of your grace and mercy for me. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for what you've done. Thank you that you have always and will always be writing your story in a manner that is good and right, beautiful and redemptive and perfect and holy and just. Help us to trust you more than we trust what we see, trust what we feel. We love you, Jesus.